Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. We have a special guest for you today. Dr. Mariana Brassoni is an Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics and School of Population Public Health at the University of British Columbia and an investigator with the British Columbia Children's Hospital Research Institute and the BC Injury Research Prevention Unit. Mariana conducts research on children's outdoor and risky play, adult attitudes related to children's risk and safety, and designing supportive outdoor play environments. She has published her research extensively. Her work was featured on CBC's The Nature of Things in 2019 documentary, The Power of Play. Mariana was awarded the 2019 inaugural Outdoor Play Canada Dr. Mariana Brassoni Award. And after reading that bio, you can see why I wanted to share Mariana's experience with you. She's one of our people coming from the place of supporting children to have an authentic childhood. So thank you so much for joining us on Play It Forward. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lucas. Well, all the way from Vancouver. Let's get straight into it. As we ask all guests, where did you play as a child? Mm. Well, uh, I mostly grew up in Calgary, which is um, in the prairies in, in uh, Canada, a uh, very flat city. But uh, near our house, we had um, a river, the Bow River, that uh, used to run through. And so, uh, you know, like many people who kind of were born in the 70s and grew up in the 80s, I, I had a free range childhood and my parents just kind of let me go off and do what I wanted. So um, uh, we had always had dogs and we had a wonderful huge dog that used to go with us everywhere and we used to go catch garter snakes at the Bow River and and just get into trouble generally. And leading into your adult experience after that childhood um, how do you think that experience of that wilderness adventure catching snakes contributed to where you are now involving your research coming from a place of like investigating injury prevention, essentially, into supporting risk. I find that just such an intriguing leap that we tend to view as very separate realms. It's like we've got to prevent injury, promote risk separate. But your experiences, they're linked. So how did that childhood experience get you there? Well, it wasn't just the childhood experience. It was a few things, but I guess it was the childhood experience as well as experiences parenting my own kids. Um, and then some of the research that I was doing with parents, particularly fathers um, of children, uh, where I just realized that there was kind of a big um, disconnect between um, the kinds of things that I was saying as an injury prevention researcher and that is common in the field, um, things like uh, risk is equal to danger or hazard. You know, risk must be minimized. Uh, it can only be a negative thing. Um, and 
and my own kind of the way I was living my own life, the way I was parenting my own children, and and what what I was learning about how parents and particularly fathers, you know, thought about risk and play in their children's lives. Um, and so because I'm a developmental psychologist, that's my um, doctoral training. I noticed that there was a um, there was a disconnect between what the developmental psychology literature you know was saying in terms of kind of the importance of kids taking risks and and building those capacities to to be able to handle risks and um, the injury prevention approach that was really just focused on eliminating injuries um, and and therefore risks were to be discouraged. So it was kind of like this this kind of harsh rubbing that was bugging me and bugging me until I had to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it seems to be common with the guests that we have on when I ask them about how it, how do they get into this field was like there is that linking of those realms as we speak. The the friction creates the spark and the, the interest moving forward. Um, I love the of coming across your... Um, going through your websites and getting to really know your content. Um, for our listen to, listeners, um, a previous guest, Adam Bainstock, mentioned Mariana's work um, and how important it is. And he's like, you've got to check this out, head over. And since then, delving down a rabbit hole. But I love this term that comes up again and again, and it's safety doing harm. So maybe you could unpack that a bit for us. Yeah, uh, so I guess that's that's... Uh, kind of the situation that I came to in terms of the injury prevention research. Um, and so um, it's a common problem uh, when you have uh, different realms that kind of get into their own mindset and in public health, you know, that's that's very common. And in injury prevention, we're just looking at injury stats and getting, getting those injury numbers down. Um, and so implementing whatever safety measures were seen as necessary. So in the case of kids play, you know, things like very close supervision, um, creating um, playground standards for play equipment uh, that did things, standardize a lot of the equipment, you know, applying um, a lot of what we learned about workplace related injury prevention, but to children's play, you know, where it doesn't really apply. Um, And so, you know, all of this was well-meaning, you know, we just wanted to reduce injuries, keep kids safe. Um, But uh, when that you know, was the only thing that we were concentrating on without thinking about the holistic bigger picture around, you know, children's need and and the fact that risk and risk taking and risky play is a, is a very natural part of, of children's play. Um, then we were kind of negating that need for kids, trying to eliminate it without understanding the, the potential harm that could happen from that. Um, and so as the research, so uh, Ellen Sandsetter, a Norwegian researcher, has really piled And since her thesis, and um, she was doing her work, you know, starting in around 2009, since that work, there's been kind of an explosion. And along with that, an understanding of kind of the harm that we can do when we keep kids too safe and the importance of, of risky play for children's health, development, and well being. Yeah, I see that um, Sandsetter research is such a pivotal point in. It's kind of like the rebranding of the word risk <laughs> because it was kind yeah. of, and it also highlights the power of a single word and association of a word. Um, when we just, as a population, we consider risk something to be avoided and we've got to eliminate it for such a huge part of the population. But you speak to people of the play world, of the children world, risk means possibility. It means 
challenge. It means fulfillment and all these other things. So sensitive research and really defining those categories and formalizing in such a way where we can really understand it from that adult realm and saying, look at these categories of risk and play that are essential. Um, anyone wants to check that out, notes um, for the Sandsetter Research will pop, pop in the show notes because they're super valuable. Um, one thing that we talk to educators about is how a sense, and we just touched on it then, how a sense of accomplishment is achieved in overcoming risk. Does your research confirm or explore that theory um, from a research standpoint? And what is the why behind it? Like in my talks, I'm saying, like we have to have that fulfillment. Just look at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've got to feel safe and then accomplishment, self-fulfillment and accomplishment. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and usually what I do kind of when I when I do talks with the public is, is really, I think the most effective way of people kind of relating to this is to think back to their own favorite childhood play memory. You know, we started off this episode with one of mine. Um, but it's not hard for people to to take themselves back there and just think about that favorite play memory. Um, and it's 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 so entertaining actually when I'm doing this because you know smiles start to pop up you know yeah. across the room. Um, but when you uh, so when I have you know I I ask people to think about their favorite play memory, um, and then you know I just ask them a couple of kind of questions about that play memory, and um, you know most people were outdoors. You know, most people are taking risks. Most people are not supervised. (laughs) Most people are not in a formal playground, you know, with a piece of play equipment and a fence. They're in um, the streets around their home, you know, ditches, ravines, you know, using loose parts, uh, just kind of making their own play environment. Um, And so if you think about it, you know, what is it about, like, why are those features so important? Um, And so when we ask people that, they talk about a sense of, of joy, you know, of of being able to um, move their body in ways that they, you know, weren't allowed to inside, of, of shouting and running and meeting up with their friends and making up their own ways of playing and and uh, just figuring it out for themselves um, and, and just and the ever-changing outdoor world, right? You know, every time you go out, there's something else to explore. Um, and so you can actually map all of those characteristics, like they're very important, unique characteristics to outdoor play that aren't the same as indoor play. And you can map those to children's child development, health and well-being needs, right? So, so, um, so things like, um, being able to play with their friends, figure out what they want to do for themselves. That is really important for a sense of accomplishment, right? So it's not an adult who's telling you what to do. It's you figuring it out, you setting your own goals, figuring out the steps to attain those goals and knowing that you can do that, you know, and then pushing your body in new and different ways and, and seeing that you can accomplish it or not because failure is also, you know, really important. Um, And, and overcoming failure and, and adapting the play for different people who are playing or different circumstances, you know, so, so I think that if people can think back to their own favorite play memory and, and think a bit about what that gave them, then it becomes all that much easier to understand why, you know, kids now need that. I'm just so overwhelmed with so many questions and so many avenues I want to go in that one statement. So I'll start on the first note I just jotted down. From a do- developmental psychologist's point, why 
why is it that these experiences are so ingrained? And when we can think back to it of these memorable experiences, we can be there in a second. So what's going on inside us? And the reason I think this is so important to understand is because the children's experience now in this modern age of the protection effect, it really concerns me about what are children going to think back on in the future as a memorable childhood? So right. what's happening to create that memorable childhood or memory? Yeah, well, and, and, and you know, to, to be fair, I think that kids now, and, and I've asked that question of people of different ages, right? And, and the ages, you know, you, you get different responses at different ages. And sometimes you have to, you have to dig a bit deeper uh, with some of the younger uh, age groups, right? Yeah. To get at that feeling of joy. But, but thankfully, everybody has it's a universal kind of experience. It's not hard to get anybody to, to think back to that play memory. Um, what is it? It's a good question, actually, maybe an interesting study. You know, what is it that's so compelling? Um, and why, why, like, you know, it tends to be around age eight to 12 that people uh, tend to deposit themselves in, you know, and maybe that's kind of memory, you know, the, the fact that you can remember a bit more from that time, maybe it's because you were given more freedom at that point, yeah. so you're able to do more stuff. It's I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. yeah. Um, and from there, you mentioned it in that previous statement about the importance of failure. Why is failure so important? Um, it's important to fail and to learn to fail because we will fail. You know that there's a lot of failures in life. And if we feel that we can't fail, that we're not allowed to fail, then we don't learn how to cope with failure and how to overcome it. And also sometimes failure can lead to the most exciting innovations, mm. right? So, you know, if something didn't work this way, you adjust it and you do it this way. And it's like, you know, a spectacularly wonderful, you know, different way of doing things. So, so I think failure is really at the root of, of a lot of creativity. Um, and you, you talked about that kind of sense of self-confidence and resilience. I, I think it's critical to that as well. Yeah. And taking that step forward, it goes into the Brené Brown realm of that vulnerability and saying, well, I am going to fail, but look what comes out the other side. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, if a child can't have the affordance to manage their accomplishment or have that affordance personally, are they going to uh -huh. go and put it on other people for their confirmation and for their joy? So that external fulfillment versus internal fulfillment. Yeah, well, and I would actually even back up a bit because um, so there's this uh, term called executive function. I don't know if you come across that, right? So, yeah. so it's, it, it encompasses a bunch of things, but, but things like, you know, having your attention focused on one thing, um, being able to figure out what your goals are and the steps to attain your goals and to, and to actually, you know, stay tuned to that thing long enough to do so and, and things like that. So, um, uh, executive functioning and those skills are like any muscle. You know, they need to be exercised in order to be built. Um, and there's a kind of a ton of research showing how executive functioning skills predict later um, a, a attainment in life, you know, health, yeah. um, the kinds of careers that people end up in and, and you know, wealth, all sorts of things. Um, and so they're quite important skills. So, you know, if you have... Um, 
a child who's who's uh, in a lot of kind of programming, doesn't have a lot of opportunity to kind of make up their own goals and just kind of follow those goals, um, then, you know, that muscle isn't exercised. And so the executive functioning skills can be lower. Um, and so, you know, I think it's it's the same really for this too, right? So you you need to kind of build up that that self-confidence, that that feeling that you can do it, um, and self-efficacy, um, and and have those experiences. Otherwise, how else are you going to figure out that you're capable and competent, and that you can overcome adversity and that you are resilient? You know, I like it's not something you can teach in a textbook. You got to just experience it. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm a big advocate, and the way I break it down in my talks is that it needs to be real. You need to be able to touch and, and learn and be stimulated through the senses. But we've got this strange thing where we teach these very sensory ideas in abstract ways. <laughs> we say, don't go in their space. And they look at you like, well, I can't see it, touch it, taste it. What are you talking about? Or even so from a sustainability standpoint of saying, let's care for the environment. It's like, where is it? It's everywhere. Well, unless I'm going out to have the experience in nature and can I, our overall mission is for children to identify as nature would be nice. Um, mm. But it needs to be this sensory, real experience and real life is about failure. It's overcoming yep. that adversity. And if we just break it down and go, it just needs to be real. Just replicate that in the younger years. Um, you mentioned in the just previously about um, the importance of well-being um, through play, how's that? How's that base of well-being achieved through accomplishment, risk, and outdoor play? Well, I think it relates to the stuff that we've been talking about, right? Um, so, you know, well-being is is such an internal feeling, um, and part of it is feeling like you can, you have agency, um, that you can you know, take care of yourself, uh, that you, you can also experience joy, um, yeah. and pleasure and, and love. Um, and, and I think that those are all really key characteristics of, of play and, and really high quality play experiences. What changed in parents to protect their children so much in these recent years? It's like from the eighties to nineties, um, we had that huge shift all of a sudden we've got that protection effect. Based on your research and wealth of experience, what what was it? What caused the shift? Uh, well, it was kind of a, a soup of, of social kind of um, issues all coming to head um, to make kind of this, this very complex problem. Um, but essentially, there were a few things. So one of the main things that happened was that you had an increase in inequity. Um, and so in the 80s was uh, the first big recession. Right. And so you actually had an increase in wealth differential, you know, between um in different societies, particularly Canada, the US, I think Australia as well. Um, and then there was another one in the 90s, you know, then there was the 2008 and we're, you know, we're experiencing another one now. With each of those, we've actually had an increase, 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 increase in inequities. Um, and the result of that is parents uh, being more concerned that their child will be able to make it, right? Yep. Will be able to, you know, get into the right university, get the right job and have a better quality of life than they did, you know, rather than worse. Um, and so 
that that kind of combined with uh, it, it it resulted in the development of an intensive parenting model, right? So so whereas it, it really parenting becoming a verb, right? As you know, something that parents should actively do and that they should read up on how to do and that mm. there was a right and a wrong way, you know, to parent. Um, and of course, there was a plethora of kind of advice, you know, magazines, books that all, you know, came out at that time and have continued to come out. Um, and so very much an idea that this is the right way to parent this intensive parenting model where you are curating your child's life. Um, you're, you know, putting them in the right school. You're making sure that they're in 10 different programs. Um, but also at the same time, we had a shifting conception of the child uh, as, as someone who's vulnerable and in need of care rather than approaching them from a point of competence and capability. Right. And so that they need us to take care of them rather than seeing them as so capable of taking care of themselves. And then on top of all of that uh, was also, um, you know, a shift in public health kind of in, from the 50s on as we um, reduced communicable diseases like tuberculosis and and uh, polio and things like that. There was more of a shift towards prevention and, and injuries became the leading cause of death for kids, you know, and so then we also had this shift towards, you know, the importance of keeping kids safe mm -hmm. and um, and making sure that they weren't injured. Um, and so, you know, and there were a few different, you know, there was a change in the women going out, you know, to work. There was uh, urban urbanization that meant that you were less likely to know your neighbors, you know, all of these kinds of things that just fell into a soup that, that have influenced what we're experiencing today. How do we move beyond it? It's the next question. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, it was kind of a multi-generational journey here. It's yeah. going to be a multi-generational journey back. You know, there's no, uh, you know, quick fix or solution. Uh, but but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that a lot of the stuff that we're doing is kind of, you know, shifting the, the needle. You know, first of all, the fact that somebody like you actually wants to talk to me and uh, do a podcast is positive. <laughs> you know, the media are picking up on this. So so it's getting out there more. Uh, people want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, we've also seen, for example, there were some big um, social movements like um, in the States, Utah passed a free range parenting kind of um, law in reaction to what was happening in some of the other states around parents, like kids walking to school and, and potentially getting picked up by social services, yeah. you know, because it was seen as supervisory neglect. So you had um, you had some states that did some important things there to change things um, in Canada. We've actually had our chief medical officers of health uh, sign a position statement supporting the importance of active outdoor play and with its risks. Um, th so there's been a, a number of positive kind of shifts. Um, and then more recently, I'm kind of interested in what happens with COVID, right? Yeah. You know, we've never seen really, at least in Canada, more interest in being outdoors than we did, you know, especially during the, the lockdowns. Um, and and I think that there was, there could have been a couple of, there could be a couple of things happening. One, you know, people getting to know their neighbors more because they're all at home and, you know, hanging out outside. So that could improve social cohesion or just feeling even more alienated from the outdoors or, or more fear for their children, you know, because 
now other children are a source of infection, other people are a source of infection. So, so that fear of the, the abductor, the boogeyman becomes even more so now there's a fear of kind of infection. So it's kind of an interesting time in that sense too. Yeah. And you can see that just depends on the person you talk to. Like one person's gone completely into lockdown. They're seeing no one. And then as you drive into my neighborhood, I've never seen so many people as a family out walking or using the trails around the hills around the back of my house. It's been this really polarizing experience. You're one or the other and there's like not sure about the middle road <laughs> at the moment. But um, yeah, and even just talking to families with young children, like a good friend of mine, he's in Dubai and he had a his son was born at the start of the year. So mm. ever since it's gone straight into lockdown and then it's into summer where it's 45 outside. So he's calling me going, what, what are, what are the, going to be the effects of my child being in lockdown for so long and reassuring him that he's got amazing social engagement and all of that and still exploring those sensory activations. So it's really affecting people um, and their concerns for their children, which could have a negative effect on that roll on into more protection. I love the stat you shared in a keynote saying about in reference to abduction saying in Canada it's one in 15 million chance of a one, in 14. 14. Yeah, one in 14. 14. I knew I was gonna. Yeah uh, which and, is uh and we have a national lottery and it has the same odds one yeah. in 14 million. And then it was yeah. um was it your child could play for 200,000 years? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. To to log the hours it would take for your your number to come up, it's it's about two hundred thousand years, out unsupervised. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a constant, even even um within relationships, and maybe you, with your research with dads being more pro risk than mums. What's some strategies you can share with the listeners on from for the dads to kind of turn the table or create a cheerleader in the mum that's might maybe not so risk embracing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, to be fair, there were a lot of couples that were the opposite too. So, yes, um, or, you know, when you have a parent say when there's a mismatch um, and, and a lot of the times actually the, the parent who was more conservative actually recognized that and, and also saw it as an issue. And so took steps themselves to either, for example, not be around when that particular activity was being engaged in or whatever. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that we've done is we've created a tool for parents um, that any parent can access anytime they want at outsideplay.ca. Um, and so you could go through it together, um, you know, as a couple or, or share it with your partner. Um, and the idea behind the tool, we use um, health behavior change techniques yeah. um, to, to actually guide people through a personal journey, get them to kind of think about you know, their own childhood and what they want for their child and how they're, what they're doing to support those opportunities for their kid. Um, so yeah, people can, can uh, go to outsideplay.ca and give that a try. Yeah. Even for, and you've got an exciting new launch happening. You want to talk to our listeners about that? Sure. Yeah. So at the same URL, outsideplay.ca, we have a tool for early childhood educators. Um, so now, you know, it's it's mid-September now. It's it's in the beta form, but we will be releasing the very final version by the end of October. Um, so please, you know, go back to outsideplay.ca, check that one out because um, we, we've been working with early childhood educators and we've been, um, we, we've got a lot more details in there to try and address some of the barriers that they describe. 
Yeah, and what I see it as in a summary for our listeners, it's a brilliant way to overcome that nostalgia and actually hold up risk in outdoor play in, in to a place of importance. And it's actually an essential developmental need to have these experiences. It's not just something that was nice and we enjoyed conveniently in the past. It's actually integral for your child's well-being and for their sense of accomplishment and then moving into, in brackets, a successful adulthood. Um, so in summary, how, in as brief as it can be, I know we could go a whole different podcast on this question, but how do you move beyond that nostalgia to one of supporting action. Yeah, well, and I, I want to be careful too with nostalgia, right? Because mm. it's it's also not about going back to say a 1980s childhood, right? There were there were lots of problems with the 80s that we don't want to bring back, yep. um, and and we're not in the 80s, you know, we're in our own reality, right? So it's also kind of accepting that the world has changed, that we have, for example, screens, and we, you know, we have more urbanization, we have other realities, and that's fine, um, but also uh, you know recognizing that kids actually they're really resilient and they they um, a play can happen anywhere um, and it's easy to support play in in very small spaces you know you don't need the beautiful forest you know with lots of access to different things um, kids find all sorts of joy in very small spaces you know say with loose parts or other things um, so one of the things that we found important in our research is is a sense of social cohesion in communities, right? So we talked about how um, parents really fear letting their kids out, you know, for a variety of reasons, mostly kidnapping and their kids getting hit by a car. Um, but um, what we found is that when there's high social cohesion in communities, then those fears really go down and they seem to be unrelated to the crime statistics of the neighborhood. The, their fears and the crime statistics, unrelated. <laughs> Same with social cohesion. So, um, you know, really, uh, like part of it is social planning of you know, building spaces in our cities where people want to be outdoors, want to meet their neighbors, you know, having play streets where you close a street so the kids can play, you know, or you have a designated area that it's, it's okay for kids to play, normalizing that. But, you know, but really people, people wanting to make the effort to make their neighborhood more play friendly. Um, but they can start with themselves. They can start, you know, by going to outsideplay.ca, thinking about what's important to them and how to, how to start on that journey, because it's important to note that that this is a journey, right? We're not going to, you know, as I mentioned, you know, it's going to take us some time to get past um, and and forward, move forward to supporting children's play. So um, think about, you know, one key manageable thing that you can do. For some parents, it's even been, like I tell them about the 17 second rule, you know, next time you want to say, be careful, you know, just count to 17, you know, and just kind of let it play out. And, and maybe that's the first step in the journey, right? And, and then you can build from there and that's okay, right? It's, it's, it's just feeling like you actually have agency. All of us have to work together. So it's up to all of us to try and make changes. And speaking of changes, just we'll take a moment to pause and we, we're creating the ideal play slash learning environment for a child. Where do you start? 
ideal. Um, so I guess there's three key ingredients that that I um, usually share about the kind of high quality outdoor play environments, um, time, space, and freedom. So with respect to time, it's making sure the kids have that free time to actually play and to play the way that they want to play. Um, so, uh, which gets to our freedom component. So the biggest challenge around freedom is adults. You know, adults being freaked out by the way kids are playing and, and putting limits on it or, or stopping it or whatever. Um, and so with respect to freedom, it's really us working on our fears you know, our fears of injury, our fears of kidnapping, our fears of whatever it is, um, you know, working through the fact that the worst case scenario is actually not that bad. I, I can give you a ton of injury statistics to show you how unlikely the worst case scenario is. Um, and and just recognizing um, what you're seeing in front of you, you know, how also how uh, supporting children's play can can improve your relationship with the child, you know, rather than being in a policing situation that you're, that you're co-creating potentially, or that you're, you're supporting, you're there, you know, to support them rather than to stymie them. Um, and then the third ingredient is, is space. And so we talked a little bit about that, but um, one of the key things that, that we have found that's just really helpful for kind of activating a space that, you know, when you don't have many resources is loose parts, right? And so making sure that you have a variety of loose parts, um, you know, a, a lot of them so that kids can really explore different kinds of things, you know, that they can move them around, that they can let their imagination shape the play, um, and that they feel like they can play the way they want to play. Amazing. And I didn't hear you mention a slide or a swing or a park. So maybe you can unpack that a bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, so parks are, you know, you don't need a piece of fixed equipment to have um, a high quality experience. So the way we think about play is, is using the theory of affordances, mm. you know, so if, um, if you think about an affordance for say a stick, right. Um, it, it has kind of as many affordances as the imagination of the person holding it and their capabilities. Right. So, so a child, you know, maybe, maybe it's a sword, maybe it's a wand, maybe it's a stir stick, maybe it's a piece to build a shelter, you know, um, and what they're capable of doing. So, you know, if the stick is really big and the child is small, then the affordances for that will reduce. So what you want is to maximize the affordances. When you have pieces of fixed equipment, because you can't move them, then the affordances are limited, you know, because it was the designer that decided how that piece of equipment should look and the kids yeah. can't shift it. They can do a, maybe a little bit. And sometimes kids are pretty creative with what they do with fixed equipment. But what you tend to find is that they get pretty tired of that equipment. And if you think about equipment that's in schools or childcare centers where kids are at those places for years and years and years, day after day after day, that same piece of equipment is going to get really boring really quickly. Um, and so then loose parts, um, because they can be moved around, you know, they the same part can fulfill tons of different purposes is a really good way of, of increasing affordances. And not prescribing, not being the adult again in that experience and saying, climb here, slide here, <laughs> slide here. Um, from that injury prevention standpoint, what is the data on traditional park versus wilderness? 
say that I'd love to get those data. Uh, it's actually really hard uh, because um, we don't, so the data and the way they're coded, they're coded for administrators. They're not coded for play researchers, unfortunately. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the kind of data that we can look at only are, are codes for things like falls from play equipment yeah. and falls from trees, you know, other than that, and there's like some sports, but other than that, there's no really good codes to allow us to impact the injury data. Um, but I can tell you, so um, I looked at death data for, for Canada, not Australia, but Canada, um, 17 years worth of child deaths across Canada for falls from uh, trees and and found zero, not one. Not one child died in 17 years falling from a tree. Um, there was 10 years of data for falls from play equipment and there were two children that died over the course of those those uh, four, uh, 10 years, which is a rate of one in 35 million, yeah. right? Like it's extremely rare, you know? So, so while, um, Hospitalizations uh, due to injuries are what you know. What are the leading cause of hospitalization? What you tend to find is that falls are you know one of the most important causes for kids, and falls from play equipment are are up there. But what they are is fractures, so you know basically broken arms, um, and so they're not actually considered serious injuries. So uh, last time I looked, about 89% of hospitalizations were due to um, fractures. Right. And so um, we're really looking at a very low likelihood of, of a serious trauma or injury. Yeah. And yet we're seeing the very unlikelihood dictate policy, dictate standards and increase standards. Um, I was at a play area with my daughter. She was climbing this tree, climbed up really high. There was people looking at me like um, pointing at her because she's so high up the tree. And I was like, she's fine. She's got it. Um, she came down, jumped on the swing, swung probably a meter and a half, fell on the rubber and broke her arm. <laughs> I yeah, like, ironic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so, so ironic. Um, going back yeah. to that research, what's your favorite piece of research that you've been involved with? Oh, oh, I have some really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's like choosing from your children. Um, <laughs> um, so... We did do kind of an elegant little study, which was modifying the outdoor environment of two childcare centers. Yeah. Both had really, really kind of impoverished environments. And uh, so this was work I did with my colleague, Professor Susan Harrington. Uh, she's a landscape architect uh, professor at UBC. And she developed the seven C's um, design guidelines for outdoor play environments. Um, and so we used her guidelines to modify the the play environment and it mostly involved you know bringing in nature you know like pots of bamboo that yep. we could position loose parts um dirt you know mud grass water sand um and and it wasn't just kind of dumping it in you know laying it out in a thoughtful way that created zones and still allowed the kids to they did a lot of tricycling around still allowed that sort of thing and you know zones for individual play and and kind of hiding as well as for group play and where you could get more rambunctious and those sorts of things small small study two child care centers we expected nothing it was a pilot and yet we found that um, depressive symptomatology reduced in the kids pro-social behaviors increased anti-social behaviors decreased based on this very small very limited study um, so i think that that that's one of my favorites yeah 
And from a personal level, I've seen this happen time and time again, like intentional design, honoring the child's experience. I had one scenario where we went to a center and it was very astroturf and fort previously and we put in garden areas and just wilderness for the children to be and spread it all out intentional with zones and the owner came for a handover and with the director of the center i thought everyone was outside she goes huh. yeah um they're not all here she goes yes they are everyone's out here goes, what no because previously it was just high speed and chaos and now all of a sudden just with that intentional tweak you've got four children in a play frame over here and then they had the behavioral challenges drop as well um, we'll have to continue this conversation because i want to know how you collected that data so i can do the same thing that would be amazing something and even where we want to explore putting trackers on and see the and analyze the movement of those children in the different spaces before and after as well that's awesome you're talking to a parent about and you want you're talking to a parent and you want to promote risk in a really sharp concise way maybe mention some data what is your go-to conversion statement mm. to support a fair person <laughs> um i have to say data doesn't work yeah. <laughs> um what what works better is as as i we talked about at the beginning is taking them back to their own yeah. childhood play experience you know reminding them about their favorite play making them th think about why that was their favorite play yeah. and and whether their child is having similar experiences or not that i find is what like you you watch the light bulbs turn on in people's eyes yeah um from a research standpoint and we see we can look at the data of the amount of outdoor play happening one generation ago and there's research out it's like dropped 40 percent around that mark in one generation what do you think that impact's going to be of the huge reductions in outdoor play for generations to come i think well i i you know we're concerned but there's a few things that um that are concerning. First of all, is a shifting of goalposts, right? So as you have kind of kids having less freedom to go out and play, to be independent, to wander their neighborhoods, you know, their their range of motion gets restricted, the goalposts shift in terms of what's normal for kids. And so now we have kids who grew up in the um, 90s, you know, post um, kind of tightening of, of uh, restrictions who are parents. And it's, they their perceptions of what kids are capable of are shaped by their own childhood which was more restricted say than my childhood or previous childhoods you know gone backwards um and so as those goalposts uh shift it's harder and harder to push them back right to to, to expand them so that's one thing i'm worried about uh, but there's there's other kind of more concrete things like for example certainly in canada and i know it's the same in australia and most certainly most developed countries around the world um, is um, increase in obesity right mm -hmm. so we have kids uh, in canada who are they're taller uh, but they're also you know heavier fatter you know rounder weaker less aerobically fit 
you know, as generations proceed, you know, than they were before. Uh, so you have physical changes to, to kids' bodies that are already happening. Mm. Um, because we know, I guess, to connect the dots, we know that kids playing outside are more physically active than kids playing indoors. Um, and we also know that risky play, that kids who are able to engage in the kind of play that they want to engage in are more physically active than kids who are kind of, you know, controlled in their play. Um, so physical activity levels, important. Um, myopia. Uh, this is kind of an interesting one is uh, short sightedness. You know, so even ophthalmologists are saying how important it is for kids to get outside three plus hours a day to be able to um, experience, you know, the rays of the sun and to look in the distance to be able to reduce the likelihood of myopia. So we're seeing an increase in, in myopia. Um, we're seeing increases in, in allergies and asthma. And one of the hypotheses is, is that because kids aren't getting their hands in the dirt, you know, they're too clean, you know, they're too sterilized. Um, so, and then of course we have things like, um, so there has been kind of, successive tests of um, creativity in the U.S., for example, and we're seeing drops in creativity scores, you know, for successive generations. These are, you know, these are correlations. We don't know that outdoor play, you know, or that necessarily caused that, yeah. but it's it's a number of things that, that raises those concerns. We've seen an increase in anxiety and depression, like dramatic increases in anxiety and depression. You know, we know the importance of outdoor play for reducing um, anxiety and depression. So again, there's a concern there a and on and on and on. Yeah. And it's, and like you mentioned earlier, the pivotal point is that adult role in this as well. And not only for educators, not only for parents, but the caretakers. If you've got a relationship with the child, you can foster and support this essential need of a memorable childhood experience. Anything else you would like to mention that's popped up for you as we've chatted? So, so I guess, I mean, one of the challenges we have uh, that comes up a lot is screens, right? You yeah. know, so screens are, ex you know, they're extremely compelling. Um, and they're also appealing to parents because if kids are on screen, they're indoors, they know exactly where they are, they feel like they're safe, um, even though, um, of course, you know, we know all the all the challenges and problems with that, you know, so so what to do about screens is 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 a problem and a challenge and something I actually, you know, I'm struggling with, I don't know. Um, I used to think that, you know, if we just made the outdoor play environment stimulating enough that kids would just oh well the screens aren't you know I'm, i'd rather be out there and to a certain point i think that is true but but it's kind of above and beyond that so so it's one of those kind of to be continued um need more research trying to figure out the best i can what we can do about that one yeah so um, where's more research needed for the people listening? Maybe you're feeling inspired after this. You can link in with some colleagues, collect some data to convey this important message. W what's your advice for people wanting to do that? Hmm. So, um, well, I, I guess I would be really curious. What we don't have is data, for example, on, you know, for example, let's say you and your company come and you do, um, uh, you know, a redesign of an outdoor play environment. Um, and so, and I'm not talking necessarily about, a, you know, a childcare center or a school, because that's kind of a more controlled environment, but say a neighborhood. 
would you see kids more likely to play outside, a reduction in screen time? There's already research out there showing that as screen time increases, um, well-being decreases, the perception of the importance of nature decreases, and and what's displaced by that screen time is actually outdoor time outdoors yeah. in play. So we already know that. But I guess it's just a kind of wondering, how do you, like, can we make environments compelling enough that they can compete with screens? And do we need to compete with screens? You know, what about incorporating screens into it? You know, just kind of accepting the fact that they're here and thinking about how we can best use screens to support children's outdoor play. I don't know. These are all questions that are going through my head. Yeah. And it's, how long's a piece of string? And considering the term risk in play hasn't been around for that long, <laughs> we're only in the infancy. And looking into research, it, there's we really are only now getting to that point where we're getting some conclusive data coming out of it from my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong because you're the research guru, not me. Um, but, yeah, it seems like we're really getting on the – the ball rolling with more and more research that confirms um, previous suspicions of the importance of outdoor play, which I think we all innately know is important, but it's now getting that data and saying this is the impact on the communities, this is the impact on health, this is the impact on the economy, well-being, um, which has never been so important in these times of lockdown. Um, I'd love to... Thank you so much for being on and joining us today on the Play It Forward podcast. It's been an honour um, to just sit down and chat with you, putting a face and a conversation to all the research I have read of yours. And I've got to thank you personally for being an advocate of getting this data out there that's so, so important. Like when I do a presentation, I've done the same thing. I've asked people to reflect and close their eyes and think about this. And the smiles that light up the room when you say, think about your childhood. Even when I say, did you get hurt? And the smile gets even bigger. You know, that's indication that this is so important. And the work that you do is so important. And I'm, I'm absolutely honored to sit down and talk to you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for providing the platform, Lucas. And it was a really entertaining conversation. Thank you. And oh, we're going to follow this conversation up in the background. And we're going to get some crazy data to share with all the listeners in the world. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mariana Brassoni. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. That was the amazing Dr. Mariana Brassoni. Head over to outsideplay.ca for those resources that we just spoke about, the early childhood tool and the parenting tool to support risk for the children in your world. If you're a geek like me, head over to the Brassoni Lab to read all the research and go deep on risk and injury and why it's important. Another recommendation is Outdoor Play Canada for amazing research. Only the best content is on Outdoor Play Canada. So head on over. Thanks so much for listening.